Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. I'm going to start off with a couple of interesting couple of interesting moments I had this weekend that really have been been sticking on my mind and and th- this stuff happens to me quite often I, you know you, you go to you go to meetings you go to places where people recognize you you know I I, I get this a lot so it's 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 not unusual but it's, it, it's another one of those things that makes me go man I wish I could solve this I wish I could fix it but I had a guy come up to me and uh, a guy I work with, and he goes, "Hey, you're that you're that guy on the radio." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's me." He goes, "You know, I listen to you, and, and and I agree with with everything you said." And it's like, you know, this my gosh, I can't, I can't believe it. And I'm going, "Oh, okay, yeah, thank thank you, I appreciate it." He goes, "You know, and I listened again, and and you know, I, I agree with everything you said." Uh, you know, you're right. And I go, well, thank you. I, I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you'll continue to listen. Uh, and, and you know, kind of left it there. And it's it's one of those moments where you go, that's great. But you're wearing a Trump hat. How do you square the two? You vote for Republicans. How do you square the two that, that you agree with me, that I'm right, but yet you vote against your own interest because evidently what I'm talking about, you agree with uh, on manufacturing, on education, on healthcare, on you, you, you name the things that we've been talking about that I'm, I'm right about and yet still voting against. And this is what's driving me crazy. And, and I've had a number of these conversations where it's, it's come back to, you know, I, I I'll, I'll quiz people that, okay, if you agree with me, why the the hat? You know why the 
you know, why do you participate in, in you know, this? You know, what is it about that, that that draws you there when you agree with me when I'm telling you that, yeah, this is what this administration is doing and I think doing well. And you agree with what I'm talking about. And what's interesting that the response that I get back quite quite often is, well, you're one of us. You know, you're a working guy like I am. Um, you're not one of them. And, and I'm often struck by that. Because I started this show almost 20 years ago because no one was talking to working people. The my truck driver buddies, they were only listening to Limbaugh and Hannity and, you know, the right wing platter of, of crazy telling them that, you know, you don't need that stinking union. There's those unions are no good for you. You'd make more money if you didn't have one. In fact, that line alone is what made me start doing radio. I had a guy literally come up to me and go, we'd make more money if there was no union here. And immediately I said, where is that happening? And if there is a place that's paying higher wages than you're making here, why aren't you there? And it was that moment where the guy, you know, kind of stopped and, you know, walked away. And a couple of days later came back to me and said, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about that. And, you know, no one ever posed that. And, and when I started this, it was, about, it was about giving the other side. It was about adding balance. Now, understand, you know, over these last 20 years, uh, the right-wing media has just gotten much more powerful. Uh, you know, from, from morning to night, you know, day in, day out. Uh, you, you can just be inundated with right-wing insanity. And it's all the same message. It's all outrage. It's all it's all to get you to continue to listen, to be angry, to not solve problems. The problems are important. The issues are important. But the issues are important not to be fixed, not to be solved, but to be exploited. To keep us pitted against each other. So that working people don't talk to each other and they, they, they're supposed to hate each other. And, and you get that kind of vibe. And when I tell my lefty friends that, you know, I don't, I don't hate the people I work with. I think they're misguided politically. I think they listen to the wrong people. I think they, uh, they, they have some, some, you know, bad ideas. Uh, but I don't think they're horrible people. I think they're reachable. I think if we talk to them, I think if we, we, I'm a believer that, you know, I don't care who you are. We can sit down and have a beer and we can, we can hammer out ideas and we can, we can argue and, and, and still not have to kill each other. I still, still somewhat believe that. I don't know how I'm going to hold that on much longer, but the reality is, is, you know, working people, especially the white working class, uh, Democrats in the left have left behind. They don't talk to them. And I've said one of the reasons that I think that, that I'm so successful in doing what I do is I have the credibility of being someone who has calluses on my hands, uh, that my back aches at the end of the day just like theirs, that my, my knees are shot, my hips are, are bad, that 
you know, I've worked you know my butt off for you know 35 years in a manual labor job that, you know, to be honest, has gotten much worse over the years. Just like they have. I've struggled and, and sacrificed just as they have. Only I see things a little bit differently. I don't allow myself to get pulled into the to the, to the outrage candy that's being force-fed to us, to where we're the enemy, to where we have to tear each other apart. While the guy who has never really worked a day in his life walks away with all of the, all of the spoils. So when I start talking to these folks about the issues that I think are important, the fact that we've got a tax code that's rigged against work, and the guy who did it was Donald Trump, they listen. They may not agree, but they listen. The guy who who took their 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 ability to write off their union dues off of their taxes was Donald Trump. The person who ensured that the very wealthy in this country got even wealthier were all all of the parties, but mostly Republicans. When you look at the tax code changes that have happened in my lifetime, we have created a massive billionaire class. In fact, you know, I had this conversation with, with someone and I said, look, you know, the reality is, is in 1953, we had a top marginal tax rate of 92%. If you made over, I think it was like $1.6 million in today's money back then, that dollar over $1.6 million, you paid 92% tax on. All the way up until 1962, I think it was, when, when Kennedy lowered the 70. And that 70% rate stayed all the way until Ronald Reagan became president to when he dropped it all the way down to 28%. And then you saw this explosion of federal debt because we didn't have the revenue coming in. We didn't have the money coming in. But we were told, no, no, no. Don't, don't believe what your common sense thought that if you lower the rate, more money will come in. Don't, don't believe your, your, your mind when it says, what, we're going to cut taxes on rich people? They're going to keep more of the money, but somehow we're going we're gonna to magically have more? Didn't happen. We created a lot of debt. A lot of debt. But we created a large billionaire class. And how do they use that money? Well, they use that money to divide us even further. And they've done a masterful job. To where now when I, I look at the sad reality is uh, every every one of the, the podcasts that are out there that focus on, on, on working people, it's most of it's the crazy stuff. It's all about the division. It's not about solving problems. And one of the things that I like to think about that we do here at this program is solutions. How do we move forward? How do we make lives better? When we went to you know numerous communities across this country, you know it was about hey how do we re restore the pride that came with being a manufacturing community, a community like Akron, Ohio that made you know tires, a, a community like Toledo, Ohio was the glass capital of the world. Claire, Wisconsin was rubber. You know you go go down the list of all of the the towns that we went through that. You know, that, that, that central factory was the, the heartbeat of that community. And when it was gone, well, the identity was gone. And so was the sanity. And this is where, you know, I, I said, look, we used to have pro-labor Republicans. We don't anymore. 
I don't know of any pro-labor Republicans left. And I point to South Carolina. Uh, just, just, just recently, uh, South Carolina Governor Henry McMasters gave his state of the state address. And where, <laughs> you know, much like Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley did the whole, you know, I wear, I wear party shoes so I can kick those labor unions. Uh, he said that he would fight labor all the way to the gates of hell. Yeah. Now, understand, uh, South Carolina has, uh, has, has one thing going for them. Uh, they have the lowest union density rate in the entire country and have for years. They've, had that, they've held that title for a very long time, and they're proud of it. They're proud of the fact that they have a union density rate of just about 2.3%. Uh, you know, just above North Carolina is 2.7%. Now, you, you you look at, like, New York. Uh, their, their density rate is, is over 20%. You look at Hawaii, their union density rate's over 24%. And you wonder why those workers make better wages, have better health care, have better retirement security, why standard of living is higher. Oh, I, I, I wonder. But what we know is we know that in these, in right to bargain, high union density states, there's a better distribution of income. But sadly, what's happened over the years, as we've deindustrialized, as we've lost those factories that were heavily unionized, as we those communities lost their labor unions, the Republican Party walked away from them. Because there used to be pro-labor Republicans. There were. There were Republicans who didn't want to gut labor protections, didn't want to gut minimum wage laws, didn't want to gut prevailing wage laws, didn't want starvation and desperation working conditions. And go figure. Because they had a vested interest. People would vote for them. So they had to be on the side of working people. But as those unions went away, because the factory went away, and I heard this a lot when we did our Working Class Heroes tour. Well, you know, the unions abandoned us. No, the unions had nothing left here. The jobs were gone. The union is not something that's an outside entity. The union is the workers. The union is the people who are the members. That's who the union is. And this is what Republicans have done masterfully over the years. They've divorced people from their institutions. They've divorced people from their organizations. You know, it's the government instead of our government. This is our country. This is our government. It's the union instead of it's our union. We pay dues to it. We elect the people who represent us. We we fight for better wages, hours, conditions. Instead, they they want you to think that it's its outside entity that that you know it's it's a car insurance. It's not. It's participatory. It's active based. And that's what scares them. And that's why someone like McNatt Masters knows in a state that has the lowest union density rate in the country, uh, if that idea that, hey, I can make my life better by joining a union and bargaining? Huh. Maybe I'll do that. Now, understand, he's all ripped off uh, because there's a, this is evidently a, court, a, a case that may go before the Supreme Court. Not sure yet. 
uh, that has to do with the state's port authority and the International Longshoremen's Association. Uh, the, the the state has always done the, the crane operators' jobs. There's a ca case going on that this could be done by workers instead of state workers, which they would have the ability to join unions, which is driving the state crazy. Uh, so he's a little bit upset by that. But in his his speech, and I'm sure you've heard me say before, Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do. He said, we will not let our state's economy suffer or become collateral damage as labor unions seek to consume new jobs and conscript new dues-paying members. And we will not allow the Biden administration's pro-union policies to chip away at South Carolina's sovereign interest. And you go, what sovereign interests are you talking about? Low wages? Lower health insurance coverage? Lower retirement security coverage? Less safe workplaces? What, what positive are you are you referring to? Or is it the higher profits, the, the, the more exploitation? What, what is it, Governor, that you are, you are pursuing? And this is where I, I come back to we as working people get hung up in our red hat, blue hat fight. I don't get, I don't get hung up in that. It's never been about red hat, blue hat for me. It's never been about black or white for me. It's always been about green. It's always been about fighting for better wages, hours, conditions, opportunities to make the lives of working people better. Look, our billionaire class, they've got tons of people who are looking out for them. They do. They, they're they're going to be fine. I'm worried about the people like me who get up every morning, drive to work, punch a clock, bust their behind, only to have that paycheck not go as far as it used to. And then to be told by a governor, yay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight to the gates of hell to ensure that you working people don't have the opportunity to make your life better, your lives better. Now, South Carolina has 49,000, according to the census, 49,000 union members in the state. 49,000, that's it. Um, they have 14,000, well, the people who are uh, getting union benefits. Uh, we'll call them freeloaders. They've got 14,000 freeloaders uh, because South Carolina was one of the first no rights at work states uh, that forbid mandatory union membership or dues. So you can you can be part of a collective, bar be in a place where a collective bargaining agreement exists and you get all the benefits, uh, but you, you, can, you can basically freeload off of that. But here's what we know, and I, I go back to this because this is important. In places that have union contracts, higher wages, better health care, better retirement, safer working conditions. We know that. I simply have no idea why you don't fight for that. Now, the UAW, we talked about this last week. The UAW has come out and endorsed Joe Biden. There was no way they were ever going to endorse Donald Trump. And I, in fact, you know, Sean Fain said, I can't fathom any union would support Donald Trump for president. Uh, let's be real and let's look at the facts. And and I tweeted out, I said, every labor leader, including the, the leader of my union, the Teamsters, uh, I think Sean O'Brien should learn this, this phrase. 
I can't fathom why any any union would support Donald Trump for president. Let's be real and let's look at the facts. The facts are Donald Trump was terrible for labor. Donald Trump was one of the worst presidents in my lifetime for working people. That's the fact. Life got worse. Working conditions got less safe. Wages went down. But you hear this revisionist history. Oh, everything was everything was amazing. My Teamster president, Sean O'Brien, has a nice picture of him doing the thumbs up uh, down to Magalago. Uh, and they're going to evidently have a have a have a round table. They keep poking that bear, uh, like they like maybe they will endorse it. Maybe remember that it was Joe Biden who helped secure the multi-employer pension funds, the Butch Lewis Act that helped save the central states' pension funds, uh, one that if my grandfather was still alive would still be collecting from, and the millions of workers who depend on those pensions. Donald Trump did nothing and would do nothing ever to help working people. So facts matter. Not alternative facts, but real facts. And not red hat, blue hat, but green. Because those workers that that got the help, just like the UAW workers who saved their jobs, are the people who have the calluses on their hands from a hard day's work who take a shower at the end of the day, whose bodies are a little a little more broken down at the end of the day, at the end of another week, at the end of another year. That's reality. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something in your mind? By all means, I want to hear it. Uh, what do you think? Where do you think we should go? What do you think we should do? Going to take a quick break right back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. This is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1912. That was the day striking worker Anna Lopiazzo was shot and killed by local police during the pivotal Bread and Roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. In what is considered one of the most important strikes in American labor history, the industrial workers of the world had organized a strike that brought out more than 30,000 textile mill workers at the American Woolen Company. Workers had been on strike for most of the month, picketing, marching, giving speeches, and stopping scabs. Their banners demanded a living wage and dignity, bread and roses. That day, there were workers' parades among pitched battles between strikers, police, and scabs. Gunfire erupted. According to Big Bill Haywood, 19 witnesses saw police officer Oscar Benoit shoot Anna Lopiazzo. The shooting provided the mill owners with an opportunity to crack down on the strike. Martial law was instituted, and all public meetings and marches were banned. 
The leading IWW strike organizers, John Edor and Arturo Giovanetti, were arrested for her murder, despite the fact that they were two miles away from the scene. Though they were eventually acquitted, their imprisonment removed them from directing the day-to-day -day work of the strike. But who was Anna Lopiazzo? According to Bruce Watson, author of Bread and Roses, Mills, Migrants, and the Struggle for the American Dream, if America had a tomb of the unknown immigrant paying tribute to the millions of immigrants known only to God and distant cousins compiling family trees, Anna Lopiazzo would be a prime candidate to lie in it. And indeed she was for 88 years, until retired IBEW 2321 business manager David Morris worked to get a headstone decorated with the bread and roses symbol of grain stalks and a rose for her pauper's grave. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So there was an interesting story I came across that, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that's just so outrageous uh, that it's true. Uh, that evidently people in my state of Pennsylvania are going to Wawa to go to the bathroom because the price of water has gotten so expensive. Because we've privatized a lot of our water services. Uh, because, you know, I, hey, privatization was all the rage. Uh, and I remember when, you know, communities were going, well, you know, we're tapped out and we don't want to raise taxes. So we're going to sell off our water and sewer. We're going to sell off our infrastructure, our parking, our prisons. Our, we're going to sell off all this stuff so we can get a little bit of cash to help us get through a strap period. And then, you know, we won't have to make the investments and the, the upgrades and the things that we would need to, to get this, this service to people. Uh, it's a win-win, we were told. And I remember that being thrown at me a lot as I was going, no, it's a bad idea. Privatization is a bad idea. In every form, privatization is terrible. And uh, over the weekend, had had you know had uh, a beer with a um, a Trump supporter and his his son, who is uh, uh, much further left. And interestingly enough, both of them were telling horror stories of privatization uh, from, you know, uh, one who works at NASA, one who was in the military, uh, how we, you know, and look, this is not new. This is stuff we've talked about for years on this program, how we privatized our the military supply chain. How during Iraq, uh, you know, basically it was Halliburton who was our supply chain. And how, how expensive it was to get food and water and plywood and, and basic necessities to our soldiers, where in the past, it was a military supply chain. There were soldiers doing this, this work. Now it was military contractors. People making huge, a lot huge money, a lot more money than the soldiers were making. And they were in it for the, for the moneyed interest, not because they were defending the country or anything like that. And, you know, look, NASA, same thing. You know, the, the reality is we outsourced most of that. We don't do anything for ourselves anymore because we were sold on this idea that privatization was great. So is it? am I surprised that people are running down to the local Wawa to use the bathroom? No, it doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is more people aren't doing it. And what surprises me is we're putting up with it. This is the thing that blows my mind. Where's the outrage? You want outrage candy? 
You want something to be ticked off about? You want something to get all fired up about? Think about all of the stuff that was stolen from us, sold off for for trinkets. And they're trying to do it to our education system. Because we've been we've been trained like Pavlovian dogs to when we think about, you know, the private sector they do everything more efficiently and and better and cheaper and it's 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 better for us you go down the list of all of the the wonders of the private sector and then the public sector is all bad it's all bad it's a bureaucracy it's slow it's it's no good it's what we've been trained and and interestingly enough it has worked because they have taken from us our assets they have taken from us the commons uh, that we, the things we once did for ourselves, and they are lining their pockets. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the working class, you get to work more. You get to work longer. You get to work without a retirement. Is that not something to be really upset about? I kind of think it is. I kind of think it is. For our free, our free speech TV audience, I appreciate you tuning in. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time for our radio affiliates. We're going to take a quick break right back after this for both. If you miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast at thericksmithshow.com. I also want to hear from you. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So Marjorie Three Names is back at it again. You remember remember not too long ago she called for a national divorce? Uh, She wants the red states and the blue states to divvy up uh, because because of immigration and and, and some other things. You know, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, anything decent, you know, she's she's opposed to. Uh, but she's back at it again, said, you know, when I said that we needed a national divorce, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And a serious example, because uh, she's talking about what's going on at the Texas border. 
And and again, I'm I'm listening to people and the the ramped up rhetoric, this almost call for civil war. I've seen people on social media; they've got their guns out, like they're gonna they're gonna join up to the militia and head down to Texas. Like they had a number of people ask me, "Do you think we're gonna have a civil war?" No, we're not. Gonna have some idiots cause some chaos, I think. But I'm I'm not seeing the whole. Not seeing the Civil War thing, but here to share some thoughts on what's going on down in Texas and also the fact that we we can't seem to get anything done in Congress when there's a bipartisan immigration deal that could be had. And here to share some thoughts on all of that, I've asked our good friend Bob Nay, former Ohio congressman and political analyst, to come share some thoughts. Bob, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you, Rick. So what do you make of uh, a Marjorie three names here saying we need a national divorce? We need to we need to we need Texas to be able to secede. Well, there's one thing in that whole equation we need to know. Which state is she going to live in? <laughs> we need to know so we can not live in that state if it happens. All right. Got to know that one. Uh, yeah. For her to even suggest uh, yeah, civil war and yeah. That, you know, that's not, e well, it's red meat maybe to some, but it's not even red meat in general because, you know, who wants to go to a civil war? Although the issue of immigration, no question about it, is probably superseding right now any talk of the economy. The economy's up there, I understand that. But immigration's, you know, it's way up the flagpole on, on issues, no yeah, doubt see, about it. It seems interesting to me, though, because... It seems interesting that when the because there's been some really good economic news here lately, I'm sure you've seen. It seems interesting that now we have this all this immigration stuff popping up so that it, it takes away from the economic news. It seems like at, at interesting times, the border issue keeps being pulled back into the into the, the main consciousness of the country you know, by some right, right wing media outlets that that make sure that the outrage candies. Out. It just seems very convenient to me. Well, the Republicans under McCarthy, it started with McCarthy when he was Speaker, Rick. As you know, we reported on this in, on your show. McCarthy started it to pull the border issue into the equation. And, of course, Speaker Johnson continued it. So that was something they were building up because, on one hand, you go after President Biden with the inflation and the gasoline and the economics. And... Also, the Biden administration and the political forces and the money people didn't do the job they needed to do at the time to have an offense to this, to you know talk about the, the projects that were out there, to talk about what the piece of legislation actually did that Biden passed. Now, they didn't do that. So they gave the Republicans you know, a, a, a moving target there, but they gave the Republicans the ability to start to go after the uh, economic issue. The Biden administration has started Janet uh, Yellen last week. President went on a couple projects. You know, I don't remember exactly which state. I think Wisconsin was one of them. And they're having some surrogates talk about uh, the economy. Plus, as we know, uh, interest rates are probably going to be reduced by the Fed most likely three times. So having said all of that, you've got to have another issue until that one either goes a little haywire or maybe inflation comes back a little bit, you've got to have a secondary issue. So you pull out of the drawer the issue that McCarthy as Speaker started and Johnson started. But something happened as you're pulling this out of the drawer to throw it out there. You have a guy named Donald Trump that says, wait a minute. No, 
I can make the perfect deal. Stop it. This is not a good deal. So meanwhile, Langford, a Republican senator, and Chris Murphy, a Democrat senator, have already got the the wheels turning, and a lot of members said, yeah, that's a good idea, and then Donald Trump steps in. Some of them say, well, I don't know about that, that idea. That's what's going on. Now, technically, and I don't care what they say, because they won't say it's public, technically, Trump stepped on the Republicans' plan. Let this thing matriculate. Let it filter out. You know, you start the attacks, this and that. And, of course, Trump makes border a number one issue and biden now frankly has has had uh you know an awareness now that hey this is a problem so the president's willing to do some things that maybe he wasn't two or three years ago to anger some of his base if you're going to do a deal you're going to anger both sides yeah no you're going to anger them that, that's how any good it's, deal yeah. is everybody's mad and that's one of the first things i learned in negotiating contracts if everybody's upset it's probably not a bad deal because you didn't get everything you wanted. You got some of the things you wanted, you needed, but you didn't get everything. Right. So everyone walks away uh, not getting everything they wanted. But, you know, right. you bring up the, you know Langford, you know, who I got to tell you, uh, if Langford's involved with something and he's on, on the side of being in favor of it, I'm going to be a little I'm going to be a little cautious in signing on to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because of who he is. But the fact that, you know, Murphy and him have this bipartisan deal that, the text hasn't been released. We don't know what the deal is. And then you have Trump come out and say, I'm against it. So a bunch of Republicans go, I'm against it too, without actually having read what the bill is. Kind of, kind of curious. Kind of makes me go, um, wouldn't you want to read it first before you're against it? Right. And, and Langford's been criticized, you know, by the GOP. Look, Steny Hoyer, who up to last year was the number two ranking leader in the Democrat uh, you know, structure, Steny Hoyer and I, when we did the Help America Vote Act, in the Senate we had McConnell, Dodd, and Ted Kennedy, right? Now, when we did that, the White House, by the way, were they were making private phone calls saying, ah, I don't think we want to stir that up. I don't think we want to do this. And we're like, shh, you know, just stay low, stay low, follow us. So we were allowed to do that. At that time, had Bush... Uh, come out and you know done uh, done what Trump has done. Uh, it might be a different picture what I'm talking about today. Yeah. Uh, in those days, the White House kind of sat back and waited till the Congress worked its will. That's not happening because happening because of a political candidate right now. Now, I will tell you this is probably one of the greatest times, at least from my point of view, from when I served there in the 16 years you know since I've I've been out of there. This is one of the greatest moments in probably 30 years to be able to get a border bill. And so that's kind of the sad part of it because someone can say, well, when Trump gets in, well, what happened last time when Trump got in? What happened? I'll, I'll throw that out there. Where was the border bill? There was none. Crickets. Yeah. You know? Well, and where's the, you know, the Republicans control the house. Where's their, where's their bill? Exactly. So, this is a great opportunity. I just don't know how it's going to play out. I, I highly doubt it will be successful. Although I will say this, if Langford and Murphy can get something out of the Senate and it gets to the House and uh, enough Democrats and maybe 100 Republicans can, you know, feel the pressure to do something, it might have a chance. I highly doubt that. Yeah. Trump's intervention in this is 
obviously throwing cold water on it. The Senate will continue. If you're Langford and Murphy, how do you stop now? How do you say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to stop. I think Langford risks, uh, even though the GOP is all over him in Oklahoma, they're going to sanction him. What are they really going to do to him? But he does risk a lot of heat for this. I just don't think those two particularly can stop, which is probably healthy for the system to at least continue to have some kind of debate on this issue. But we don't know what's in this bill. What, you know, what is it that can possibly be in there? I mean, oh. you know, cause oh. you, you have they're, these they're... polar opposite views um, and right. you know, you have the slam the door, nobody gets in ironclad, big walls, you know, deep trenches, moats with alligators. And then you have the mm. swing, the doors open and, and, and cro- what can, what can be in here that would make the situation better? Well, I think you'd have border security. They would have to come to terms with DACA, with the Dreamers. You know, give them an instant path to citizenship. They were they were brought here or born here. They didn't know it. Uh, that's got to be that's got to be the the premise to begin with. This now, there's other issues. How do you approach asylum? How do you define asylum? Is not having a job asylum, or does it go back to being you know threatened to be killed or political harassment based on, you know, your your gender or based on your your sexual identity or, you know, based on your political beliefs. So there's going to have to be a definition of that. But there's a giving on both sides and there's got to be some border security. What they're doing is they're picking they, meaning um, I think it was maybe Johnson or well, Trump himself, but they're picking out one point now where the figure leaped out of the discussions of, you know, 5,000 people a day or, no, 5,000 people a week coming in illegally or 8,000 people in one day allows the president to make an emergency closure of the border in regards to asylum. So they're picking that out saying, oh, so they're going to allow 8,000 people a day to come across here. The problem with looking at the, at the you know, big picture on this is that they're taking out one component. As far as I'm concerned, if I was in the House and I wanted to solve this, let them go with 8,000 in one day. Let them go with 5,000. There's a House, a Senate, a conference committee. You can reduce that figure somewhat. You can give the president more emergency powers. They're going to pick out, if you want to kill this bill, you know, I can I can kill it talking as a Democrat. I can kill it talking as sure. a Republican. You know, you and I could could kill it in three and a half minutes. Pick pick our sides, and then we'll switch sides. Yeah, no, you do as, the Republican, I'll do the Democrat. Yeah, as my grandfather always said, any idiot with a hammer can tear down a house. It takes a craftsman exactly. to build one, and it's the same thing right. with this kind of legislation. I mean, sure. if if you're looking to kill something, uh, it's not hard, uh, but to right. take on this kind of a complex situation, um, to where you've got so many stakeholders and so much so much in in it. Uh, it's 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 complex, and and with it being so complex, there are so many opportunities to do just that. And look, I think Trump is going to going to torpedo it. I think Republicans have been very clear; they don't want to do anything until Trump's president, which means they don't ever want to do right. anything. Well, Speaker Johnson, look, he he got away with keeping the government open, which, by the way, I think was a good deal to do. But you know, in Matt Gates's eyes, you know, it's putting him in the I'm going to vacate the seat moment. But the speaker got away with that. He got away with agreeing with numbers with Schumer. All right. Uh, but this is one he probably couldn't get away with because Trump intervened. Prior to that, Speaker Johnson was tying, you know, 
Ukraine aid to the border. We're going to have the border. And then all of a sudden, that one line, and I, and we, you and I talked about it on your show, that one line where the speaker came out and said, well, this is pretty comprehensive. I don't know if we can do it all. That was like the day before Trump came out and said, yeah. this is a bad bill. So obviously, somebody picked up the telephone to the speaker's so, office. Somebody whispered in his ear. No, no, I, yes. uh, it'll be interesting to see because we, we need to do something. I mean, you know, you look at this. Absolutely. this, and, and I've been saying for the longest time that it's, the issue is more important than the solution to, to some yes. politicians. Uh, because it's, you know, there's an industry built around this issue. Uh, not fixing oh. it, but exploiting it. And and we right. need to we need to be uh, how do, someone emailed me and said, you know, we need we need to be fixated on fixing it instead of fixated on 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 destroying things. And and this is part of this. I mean, I wish they would be fixated on solving problems as opposed well, to you know, just exploiting them. It's just and I've heard this a thousand times when I was in office and it just made me always infuriated. This isn't the time. Wait till after the election. We'll wait till a year after the election. Wait till after the midterms. There's like never a time, okay, yeah. for some of these things. And let's, I used to help America Vote Act. When we started, we had very complicated issues. And so what we did, we, you know, Ted Kennedy and Mitch McConnell and Steny Hoyer and myself and some other uh, core members, you know, five maybe or six from each party, we just held firm to say, we're going to keep going. And we kept going. It took two years. I hope that Murphy and Langford, no matter what, I hope for public policy's future. I hope they continue on, no matter what lashings they get, no matter even if it fails. Right. I hope they continue on because then that sets the stage that, hey, we got this far one time in our history. And maybe after the election, like I said, I hate to say that, they can do something else. So even if it's dead on arrival from Donald Trump, I hope the two of them continue on to make people you continue to be conscious on this. But I will restate this. In 30 years, we have never had a better opportunity than right now to do something about the border. No, we most certainly do never. need to do it. Uh, I got to get your thoughts on the uh, the reports of three American soldiers uh, killed and a dozen more injured in a drone attack in Jordan. Uh, Iran's, you know, evidently responsible for it. You lived in Iran. You you have, you know, pretty pretty solid understanding of what's going on in that region. What happened, and and you know, what what do you think the response here is going to be? Well, you know, if we look at the history of Iran, of course, it's a long, complicated situation with the United States, and they took our hostages. We got an Iran nuclear deal. They were rolling back the centrifuges. The moderates of Iran were practically held on people's shoulders in parades in Tehran. Uh, everybody was happy with them. Then the nuclear deal got canceled in Trump's second year. When it got canceled, the clerics, the ultra right wing, you know, clerics who live in the 12th century in their minds said, you see what the great Satan does to you. You see what these moderate Iranians did to you. So the clerics rule. Now the clerics feel that the way that they can you know, attack back at Saudi Arabia, of course, through his proxy war in, in Yemen. And Saudi's on one side, but also it's now spilling into the Gulf due to the Israel-Gaza situation. So having said that, we have done drone strikes that have killed Iranian-backed militants. And I think some Iranians might have been killed, but Iranian-backed militants, they've done a drone strike on us. It's tragic that we have lost three American soldiers 
Let's make no you know, bones about that. And retaliation by the United States with drone attacks back on the Iranian-backed militants is, is one thing to fight back. Here's the problem. When you have people like Lindsey Graham saying, strike Iranian soil, that is a problem. The Iranians, through the militants, have struck us. It's a proxy thing. We're striking back through drone attacks. To go on Iranian soil is a, can you say Iraq? Because if you can say Iraq, multiply Iran 10 times that. Yeah. We trained the Iranians. They used to come to Texas. We trained them to fly. Generationally, they trained other flyers. The, Iran is not Iraq. And I'm telling you, it would be a fierce 20-year unbelievable battle to strike Iranian soil. They have struck us, we have struck them, and we can strike back. And, you know, and again, our sympathies to the soldiers' families, but striking as Lindsey Graham wants to on Iranian soil is a different world. I don't know why they don't give him his own jet fighter and let him go. You, know? <laughs> you, you go ahead. But, no, but you know, and yeah. you, you bring up an interesting point because, you know, I had, I had spoken to a military expert, you know, probably about, you know, eight, 10 years ago. Uh, when the last time, you know, we were, we were rattling the sabers to go into Iran. And he said, if, if you think Iraq was fun, you know, just wait till they go into Iran because they actually have planes that fly and guns that shoot. Right. And, right. and, and as you pointed and they, out, they have fierce fighters. And as you pointed out, you know, we trained them. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty big thing. That's a pretty big freaking deal. Right. And Iran is advanced and, uh, and their fighters are, are uh, you know, our fighters. Now, look. Many Iranian people like us, despite what you see in the media or what you hear, they like us. But if it comes to attacking Iran, we will have given the clerics everything they need. Yeah. Everything. Attacking the surrogates back and killing them, or if there are Iranians in, in Syria and they get killed, that's one thing. After all, Trump hit the General Ghassami. But striking their soil, that would be another. They would... The, the clerics would be able to, you know, absolutely get the vast majority of Iranians behind them because they're attacked on their soil. But beyond that, this would not be Iraq. We would be into a, a conflict that, you know, a trillion dollars or two and maybe 25 years. You don't see Biden. You don't see Biden doing that. No, if, I, I think if Biden does this, because look, same thing when when the Iraq issue came up. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. Once you go get him, the public says, well, wait a minute. I didn't know that was going to happen. Well, I didn't know it was going to cost this. I didn't know that many soldiers were going to die. And uh, I, I just, I can't imagine in my wildest dreams that President Biden would would launch uh, a missile onto Iranian soil. No, I, I just can't imagine where it would happen. Retaliate back? Yes. Launch a missile on Iranian soil? No. No, no I... We will see. But, Bob, as always, I appreciate the thoughts. Uh, thanks so much for the information, and I, I look forward to talking to you again Thank real you, soon. Rick. Thank you. Uh, our good friend, Bob Nay. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at Show.com. Uh, lots to get to, lots to talk about. Quick break right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
Sometimes you have to sit down in order to stand up for your rights as a worker. That's what workers in the Firestone Rubber Plant proved in Akron, Ohio on this date in labor history. The year was 1936. Akron, Ohio was the heart of the rubber industry in the United States, employing upwards of 40,000 workers at its peak. But during the Great Depression, as many as half of these workers were laid off. The rubber workers had unionized, but the bosses in the factories demanded the speed up of labor, added more hours to the workday, and harassed union leaders. They did this because they knew if workers walked off the job to protest the unreasonable demands, desperate, unemployed workers stood by at the ready to replace the strikers as scab labor. Frustrated, workers at Firestone decided to simply turn off the machines and sit down in the factory. Rubber workers had first tried out this tactic on a smaller scale three years earlier. The tactic proved to be successful because factory owners could not bring replacement labor into an occupied factory without risking damage to their equipment. Sit-down strikes occurred throughout the rubber plants in Akron, forcing owners to the negotiating table. The wave of sit-down strikes spread throughout the country. On this success, a wave of sit-down strikes spread throughout the country. In places like Flint, Michigan, where United Auto Workers occupied a General Motors plant for 40 days, and places like Hershey, Pennsylvania, where chocolate workers sat down for better wages, hours, and conditions. These sit-down strikes helped usher in an era of expanded union recognition. Sitting down on the job helped these workers to win a seat at the bargaining table. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, thericksmithshow.com. So I think one of my favorite articles recently uh, was over at the Washington Post written by a woman named uh, Megan McArdle. Uh, Megan had a, an opinion piece stating that you know capping overdraft fees could actually hurt poor families. And and you know she goes through this thing about you know basically laying out that you know banks are making huge amounts of money off of poor families. Uh, poor people who you know they're the ones who unfortunately are the ones who overdraft their their accounts and just get slammed. And, and, you know, what banks used to do masterfully is they would, uh, they would take the bigger checks first so that the money would come out first. And then uh, you know, in larger amounts, so that the smaller checks would be, you know, later so that those would be the ones that bounced so that they could nail you for multiple, you know, you know multiple. And they did this on purpose. This wasn't an accident. This was you know, something they would do. So if you had a thousand dollars in your account and you wrote a check for nine hundred and one for a hundred and one for fifty and one for you know twenty five and one for a dollar, you know they would they would get the two big ones out of the way. Was, okay, the money's all gone, and then and then nail you for the you know the the three the, the other three bounce checks instead of you know, doing the first the four lower ones and nail you with one, they got more fees out of you. That's that's their gig. So I'm reading through some of these stories of, of how we're, what's, what's remarkable to me is, you know, as you know, Biden is, uh, you know, trying to do something uh, to cap, you know, what, what banks can charge people for overdraft fees. Cause I'll tell you, they're outrageous. 
and trying to do something on you know you know you know bringing out into the public view some of the fees that these corporations have been been just stiffing us over, you know I. It's been one of my great angering moments that anytime you go to to anything, a sporting event, a concert, you know, a, you know, a play, you know, what, whatever, no matter where you go, corporate America is nickel and diamond you to death. Uh, you know, we we went to the to a Philadelphia 76ers game not too long ago. And uh, you know, I think the tickets were like 30 bucks a piece, and it cost us 50 bucks to park the car. And it's one of those things where you go, it's just crazy. It's crazy money for us to, 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 to park the car. And I'm old enough to remember when that's not how it was. And, you know, I look at what corporate America has gotten away with. You know, I remember, you know, years ago, you know, overdraft fees. You know, again, this is going back a while. We're only a couple bucks. Uh, someone told me they got hit with with a, with a fifty dollar overdraft fee, and I'm going fifty bucks taking money that you don't have. They know you don't have, and it just it just seems, again, kicking people while they're down. Now her argument is, well, you know, they may they may stop letting people have banks, and this is where I go. You know, this is where I'm a big supporter of public banking. Where if the private sector won't do it, the public sector should. And oh, here's the other idea. Uh, I know a lot of people don't have have the income to be able to uh, to survive. How about we raise wages? How about we raise the minimum wage? How about we give people the ability to join and form unions so they make a living wage? Hmm. Don't hear much about that. But I did read the story about Jeff Bezos, who when he was a teenager. He was such an, uh, an industrious child that he could crack 300 eggs in a Saturday morning with one hand. <laughs> There's actually an article out there talking about how, how incredible Jeff Bezos is and why we need billionaires. What we're, what we're force-fed, the kind of ridiculous nonsense that we get shoved down our throat every day is just remarkable to me. And the sooner I, you know, again, I come back to the sooner we, we wake up and say we should stop, maybe the better it's going to be. Just just my thoughts. Uh, but I most certainly want to hear yours. Email me, rick at com. I want to hear what you think, what what's on your mind. By all means, share. You got any billionaire stories of, you know, because Bezos can crack 300 eggs. One hand, one hand. Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. You miss any portion of the program, make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to the Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. At Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.